Pastors and church planners around the world need your help to receive a confessional Reformed Baptist theological education. Introducing the William Carey Scholarship Fund at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You can help students like Sam in India afford seminary training and Bible software with thousands of critically needed theological books. To learn how you can help, visit cbtseminary.org slash carry. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Dewey Dovel, and today we have the privilege to talk to Peter Sammons, and we're going to be interviewing him on his newest book published by Craigle. And the title is Reprobation and God's Sovereignty, Recovering a Biblical Doctrine. Uh, Dr. Sammons, welcome to the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're really looking forward to this uh, conversation. We've been excited to uh, get our hands on this book that has recently been published and to uh, read it. And so we're excited to have you on, but you are a first-time interviewee to our show, and for that reason... Uh, we'd, li- we'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to give us a brief introduction to yourself uh, and to our audience. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, if you want to, your family, your ministry responsibilities, what do you do? And uh, before we start recording, when you started talking about your ministry responsibilities, I asked you to talk about some of the classes you teach when you talk about uh, what you do and conversion to Christ, whatever you want to share uh, as far as introducing yourself. Yeah, so... Man, uh, where to begin? You know, I was saved by grace um, when I was 14, and um, the Lord has been continually gracious and faithful to me to just constantly surround me with with good and godly men to help instruct and train me, and and um, and so that's you know a, a long story, but um, it's just always a you know similar thing. It's a, a testament to God's grace. We're all trophies of sovereign grace, and so. Um, the Lord, uh, brought me with my wife, uh, introduced us in college. We got married in, uh, 2007. So it's like our junior year. And, um, we have two kids, uh, my son, whose name's Owen and he's four. And then my daughter, whose name's Geneva, she's two. So I had to go with a good Calvinist names, you know, uh, I asked my wife, I said, Hey, so with, it was before Geneva had the name Geneva. I said, how about a uh, Calvina, you know, and, uh, she didn't find that too funny. So we went with Geneva, which is a great, you know, great name. So we like that. Um, I currently go to Grace Community Church. I've been going there since 2009. And uh, under Pastor John MacArthur, whose teaching was super fruitful to me is verse by verse exposition and grace to you and all that. Uh, before I even came to, to seminary, um, I started seminary in 2009, same time. And um and so, you know, now at the church, I basically serve as a Bible study leader, and um, and then I teach at the Master Seminary. So I graduated with my PhD in 2017, and, uh, and I did it on the doctrine of reprobation. I did my THM before that on the doctrine of Christ's act of obedience. And so when I finished up schooling, I was looking at different options, and and I was just given the great opportunity to stay here. I believe in the ministry of the seminary. Uh, I love their their very singular focus on. Um, producing expositors, verse by verse exegetes and their commitment to the biblical text. And, and so I just love the atmosphere that I get to be a part of here. And so, um, you know, having gone through the program and then also being invited to teach at the seminary has been a huge responsibility. And, uh, I was the managing editor of the TMS journal for a little while. And so that was a, a great responsibility that I had. And, um, as far as teaching, you mentioned my classes, I, I get to teach a lot of great stuff. So I, I teach primarily in our systematic theology department. So I teach our theology one, which is prolegomena, bibliology, and theology proper. Um, and then theology two, which is Christology and pneumatology. And then theology three, from time to time, I'll get to sub in on that. I'll do man, sin, and salvation. And so uh, those are some classes that I took. And it's been great to kind of go through that material, to, to revamp them, to include some rich doctrinal reading. And, um, you know, I love making our students read through all the generations of, of great faithful men from the early church through the Puritans and even more modern stuff. Um, for electives, I teach um, our class on the attributes of God, which is primarily focused on classical theism. Um, I teach our um, Puritan theology course, which is 
really going through the London Baptist Confession, the Westminster Confession, side by side, and then also teaching historically the, you know, the three main generations of the Puritans, and then walking our students through what it means to be confessional. And then um, the other course I teach is on Calvin and the Institutes, and that's another class. I have plenty more that I want to do. I want to do a class on Luther someday, a class on, you know, biblical theology and things like that, but Right now, those are the, the six main courses I'm up and I get the opportunity to teach here. So, Well, Dr. Sammons, as a former student at the Master's University and uh, having played baseball at the Master's University as well, it is an absolute joy to have you on the program today and uh, to talk about this book that has generated a lot of attention across um, social media and I know at the Shepherds Conference, uh, by God's grace, a lot of people were able to purchase your book. Uh, so we're excited to uh, dive into those weeds today. Um, and I think a great place to start would be one of the central purposes that you laid out in your book. I want to read just a, a very brief excerpt from your work and give you an opportunity to talk about two of the primary terms that undergird all of what you write in this work. So here, here's what you write here in the introduction. You say that the intention of this book is to help faithful Christians understand reprobation properly and to help them recognize and establish the role of secondary causes. There's a lot of theology there in that one excerpt. And in light of that purpose that you state at the outset of your book, I would want to see if you'd be willing to provide our listeners with a better understanding of what we mean when we refer to reprobation and uh, secondary causes as well. Yeah, no, that's great. So the doctrine of reprobation is mainly looking at the aspect of God's eternal decree concerning the doctrine of predestination of the eternal destinies of men, those who are non-elect. So what about the non-elect? Uh, it's trying to answer that question. What was God's intention in uh, the doctrine of reprobation and the decree of reprobation? And so um, you know, I'm sure we'll probably get opportunities to kind of flesh out that doctrine more and more in our discussion today. But in the outset, my goal in the book was to help the average layman who would be reading their Bible and they would come across an issue like election. And immediately you, you think, well, if there's the elect, then what about the non-elect? You know, you have those immediate answers or questions. And to have a resource that people could go to to learn what it means, what it doesn't mean, because there's a ton of wrong conclusions about the doctrine of reprobation that exist. You know, people think that it means God's the author of sin or God has to work unbelief in someone's heart, those kinds of things, which historically it's, it's never meant those unless you go to some of the fringe areas of the Internet nowadays or or back um, in the day where there's a little bit more rampant uh, hyper Calvinism and stuff. But that was very few and far between. I think it's been overblown even, um, in my opinion. But nevertheless, just to have a resource where people could go, where they could study what the doctrine is, what it's not. And then the other thing I think a lot of times people don't recognize is the, the concept of secondary causation. Uh, we know it. We live with it every day. There's a cause and there's an effect to everything that we do in the created world. Um, and we see it in scripture. And oftentimes we come across those difficult texts where, again, if God decreed the reprobate, in what way is God responsible for the reprobate? Does it make him the author of sin? Does it make him a chargeable guilty party? It, you know, what does that mean? And how do we flesh that out? We come across texts where it says, you know, that, that God has appointed people to do, you know, or, um, or Acts 2.23 is the text I oftentimes think of, where it says um, that God predetermined the crucifixion of Jesus. And it says that they, the Jews, nailed to the cross. And then it says by the hands of godless men. So you have the Gentiles. So you have at least three parties involved there. And yet it would be unfaithful to the biblical text to just say everyone's responsible in the exact same way. Their motives are different. Their involvement is different. Um, and, you know, their intentions and everything is different. So secondary causes gives us a way to recognize the distinct areas of responsibility inherent in the biblical text that we would naturally have reading the Bible in a harmony, right? If God is not the author of sin because he is holy, if God doesn't, you know, tempt men, as James says, uh, nor is he tempted by anyone. And we come to a text like this and we see, well, God had a plan to crucify his son. I mean, the most sinful, heinous act in all of human history 
is killing the sunless or the sinless, you know, lamb of God. Um, but yet it, that's not just all it says. It says that the Jews were responsible and the Gentiles were responsible. They both had different intentions, certainly, right? The Jews were trying to kill Jesus because they saw him as a blasphemer, uh, where the the Gentiles were killing him just to kind of placate the Jews, really, you know. Uh, but nevertheless, we have different levels of responsibility there. You know, the, the Gentiles actually had the authority and drove the nails and all of that where the Jews didn't. So secondary causes allows us to understand that all agencies act according to their nature, according to the intentions of their heart, according to their desires. Um, and so it's a, it's a theological category, but it helps us understand that men are not forced or robotically determined. This is often misunderstood with the doctrine of reprobation. So I try to help people see that. So when you read the Bible, you're not just blending all those things together. That wouldn't be justice to that text or any other text. So it's kind of, I try to introduce that at a lay level. So I'm not getting super complicated. You know, you could trace that discussion. Oh man, you go all the way back to to Aristotle, if you wanted to, um, you go to Aristotle, to Aquinas, to, you know, understanding first and secondary causes, uh, you know, primary cause versus an efficient cause or a, a ultimate cause, which is why I end up doing, showing how, you know, in a scenario like Acts 2, God can be the ultimate cause. Like he takes responsibility, he takes responsibility for Judas, he takes responsibility for, for all those things. Um, but in such a way that he remains holy and the agent remains blameworthy, right? Um, and then we have the secondary causes, which again, those levels of causes could go infinitely. We just call them secondary because we mean that they're not the, the primary cause of direct action, you know? So, so yeah, so I don't know if I'm, you know, rambling through your question there, but essentially the book is to help people understand that you can understand that God has ordained all things, even the reprobation um, and the judgment of the wicked and yet in such a way that he's still holy. And so those two categories become very, very important. Hmm. Well, uh, obviously, I think all of us would say that the doctrine of reprobation is not just something that uh, we are making up. We find this taught in Scripture. And so we do want to go to Scripture a little bit and give you an opportunity to uh, tell our audience a little bit about where we develop this doctrine. Specifically, you mention a lot in your book, uh, Romans 9. And so we're curious, what does Romans 9 teach us about election? What does it teach us about reprobation? What does it teach us about God's sovereignty? What does it teach us about double predestination? I know that you could probably <laughs> give an entire lecture on each of those four things that I just mentioned, but can you, uh, in whatever way you want to, speak to that question? Yeah, I mean, there's so much rich stuff in the, you know, in Romans 9. I remember when I first became a believer, that was one of the chapters that really got me to dive into this. Because, uh, you know, I read Romans 1 to 8, don't seem to have too much of a hiccup. Then I get to Romans 9, and immediately I'm like, whoa, what is what is going on here? And I feel like I could preach dozens of sermons on Romans 9 and still not exhaust it. Um, it's in both ways, one of the most, you know, one of the richest comforting texts in all the Bible and, you know, especially flown on the heels of Romans 8, you know, you have that glorious, triumphant, golden chain of redemption. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, that those whom God has called, he's or predestined, he's called, he's justified, he's glorified. And then all of a sudden you get that kind of imaginary objector who goes, wait, if that's true, what about the Jews? Because they all rejected their Messiah. And so in Romans 9, you know, 5, he's like, well, not all of Israel is Israel. This has always been according to God's sovereign plan. And then he goes through a really uniquely detailed account of just how sovereign God is. And he starts with, uh, you know, a couple different examples, which is interesting. You know, he could have just stopped with um, Isaac and, and Ishmael. You know, he could have gone just there instead of going to Jacob and Esau. But then the natural objection would have been, well, you know, one was of a true descendant and one was from born from, you know, uh, out of wedlock or, you know, not, not according to the, the natural order. Um, but he goes straight to Jacob and Esau. And just to make sure that people don't confuse what makes someone elect or reprobate, why some people accepted the Messiah, like the Gentiles, you know, and then why some people didn't like the Jews who killed the Messiah. And that's what he's answering. You got to always kind of remember that part of why he's writing this stuff in Romans nine. 
And then he says, Jacob, I loved and Esau, I hated. But he explains that by saying, not because of anything good, right? Not because the parents, not because of anything they had done, good or evil, before they were born, he made his choice. So right there, we get the concept of God's absolute sovereignty, his authority, his right to make the decision, but to make the decision in an unconditional way. So a lot of times people confuse omnipotence, decree, sovereignty, um, you know, they don't realize that sovereignty is what right does God have to make this decision. Um, omnipotence is the power he has to execute his will, and then the decree is what he's determined will happen. And so we see right here, which is Jacob and Esau, that we get he has the authority to choose before they're ever born, do anything good or evil, regardless of anything. And then, you know, so, and we also see it's, it's uninformed in the fact that he's not looking down the corridors of time, seeing, well, which one of these is going to be a better choice, which one's going to love me in response or any of those kinds of natural things that we think determines God's choice, God's choices. And so instead we get to see the unconditional nature of God's decree, which is really fundamental to both election and reprobation. Um, and so I think that's a, a really helpful thing because again, especially with election, we all are willing to say, you know what, God chose me and it wasn't because of something good in me. I think that's repeated all throughout scripture, you know, Ephesians 2, um, right? It's for by grace you have been saved, not of yourselves. Rooms, any kind of boasting drives us in humility. If we thought in our minds, well, God chose me because he saw, foresaw, prescient foreknowledge that I was going to choose him, then there's some room for boasting, right? Because I'm better than the guy who chose, who didn't choose him, you know? Um, but he removes all that. And we, we totally accept that with election, right? It's, it's comforting. That's not that God saw I'd be a good guy, you know, and he chose me because of that, because I fail every day, which reminds me I'm not a good guy, you know? And so with reprobation, we oftentimes have that hesitancy to be like, well, wait a minute, what right does God have to choose before the foundation of the world that there would be an instrument of justice to display his invisible attributes that had not been known before the foundation of the world and to display the attribute of his justice, just like he does with those to display the attribute of his grace and his mercy. And so I think Romans 9, I think I have five chapters, kind of go through it in little bite-sized sections in the book um, to kind of explain how double predestination is built out of those texts, right? And you also see what's interesting we I talk about in there the difference between what's known as equal ultimacy and unequal ultimacy. So equal ultimacy is whenever, um, you know, it's the idea that God works in the exact same way. Like he's the direct agent. He's the monergistic worker. We know that is true in election, right? God chose me and then he does all the work to save me, right? He applies the work by the work of the Holy Spirit. He gives me faith. All of those things are a work of God. But in reprobation, we see that God decrees that there will be instruments of justice, and then he uses secondary causes. So it's unequal in terms of his involvement. He's not working in a direct way to make someone sin or to make them hate him or anything like that. So we call that unequal ultimacy. Like it's ultimacy because God's determined the ends, but it's unequal in terms of his direct involvement. And so Romans 9 is really a great text to, that demonstrates that because it uses subtly different terms when it talks about um, the hardening of the wicked and things like that, but not in a way that would make us think that God didn't determine it or God's not responsible. Um, so I think that there's some, some things in there that are really, really useful. Absolutely, Dr. Sammons. Um, I've heard it said well before that when speaking of interpretations of Romans 9, the best way that you can determine whether or not uh, your interpretation of that text is accurate is to see if the people you're engaging with are positing the same objections that are presented in the text. So if your interpretation of Romans 9 leads to the same objections uh, that Paul anticipates under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you can know at that point that you're being faithful to the line of reasoning that Paul is employing at that portion in Scripture. So objections, as you mentioned, uh, uh, by way of... Um, passing and in reference to our previous question, um, objections are bound to come when talking about election, reprobation, double predestination, uh, God's sovereignty. There's a lot of different theological traditions that uh, can bring up objections to these realities. 
What are the most common that you see, though, um, in your experience, particularly as a seminary professor? Uh, I'm sure you're dealing with pastors who, I mean, for the most part, they, they may be young men who are just wrestling with this for the first time. They may be older and they may have some um, baggage that they're carrying into seminary where they have some traditions that might be opposed to something like uh, divine reprobation. So in your context, specifically as a man who is molding the men who are going to enter into the pastorate or are presently in the pastorate, what common objections do you find to some of these principles we've been talking about so far today? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I feel like I spent a whole episode talking about that. Um, I feel like what I've seen in my, you know, years of teaching or at least time studying this doctrine is that the objections at the academy are really not a lot different than the objections in the pew, right? They're very similar because a lot of guys coming into pastoral training, whether they're doing postgraduate work or just their early graduate work to become pastors, they still are, everyone is influenced by the presuppositions of their upbringing. So the first thing in our society that's that's tough to rid people of is the idea of this invisible objectivity, right? Like no person is purely objective. Every person is influenced by every thing that they've ever learned. And so it's really about understanding your own bias, your own prejudices, your own presuppositions. That's important as a pastor for when you come to the biblical text, but it's also important as a, as a layman and also again, as a, as an academic in either any of those settings, because you're bringing to the biblical text, a whole host of presuppositions. And so one of the things that's important with training new students is I think the ultimate enemy of these doctrines really stems down to Arminianism. Uh, there's an American evangelical Arminianism that is like latent in our society that's never really been removed. Um, you know, the idea, especially even here in America, and I love America as much as the next guy, probably more than most. And yet there's this idea of individual liberty, which I love and appreciate in American society, but as a theologian and as a biblical, uh, you know, expositor, I recognize the fact that you have to remove your own individuality when you're studying the biblical text, right? If you go to the biblical text, it's kind of a matter of hermeneutics, really. And so I have to kind of undo what is our natural hermeneutic, which is to read the text with what does it mean for me or what is it saying to me in kind of a lazy, sloppy way, which most people do either out of pure laziness or they'll disguise that laziness with humility and say, I'm just trying to be objective. Um, you have to dig and mine the, the sources, right? You need to study the text historically as well as exegetically, you know? So you have to look at the semantic range. You have to look at the syntactical relationship of the text in terms of the original languages. We teach guys to do that, but you don't just get to decide what all of Christianity means by a text in a vacuum on your own. And so that's one of the things I have to help guys understand. We believe in private interpretation of scripture, right? I mean, the reformers taught that, but it's not so low scriptura in a vacuum that ignores what the church said. And I always have to remind guys that early on in theology training is that you don't get to determine what the doctrine of, let's say, the Trinity means, or that even the doctrine of reprobation. What does it historically mean? There's a historical meaning to terms. So you don't get to redefine immutability to what you think it means. It has a historical meaning. And so it's helping guys recognize that first. And that's what we do, especially even with the doctrine of predestination, because you come to it and you think of what you think is just, what you think is fair, what right does God have? And again, you see that that's what's happening in Romans 9, right? That they think it's not fair that God would get to choose Jacob over Esau. And so the question naturally is, well, what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? Well, may it never be. So there's a presupposition built into the audience, which is the same presupposition built into our audience, right, as Bible teachers and as lay people. Because I like to remind people, we're all reborn, sovereign grace of God, with the dredges of the corpse of our Arminian upbringing in our background, right? None of us get to be removed from that. And so as you're reading the biblical text, again, it's like you said, if you read the text and you said, okay, God looked down the corridors of time and he saw Jacob would be better. 
well, that's not unjust by anybody's standards. They'd all be like, well, that seems pretty fair to me, right? God picked the better guy, you know, because he saw he was going to be better. Well, what charge of injustice would there be? Or the other option, people will take that text and say it's, uh, it's national. So it's not even individual anymore. Well, God uses some nations and he doesn't use other nations. I mean, that's literally the entire Old Testament uh, with the nation of Israel. What offense is there? You know, none. There's no offense. So that means you're, there's no objection then. So the next objection makes no sense. It seems out of nowhere. Um, so helping guys recognize their own bias. Um, but also, I think the thing that I try to help guys do as a, you know, I'm teaching them is the reason why I like historical doctrinal statements. We mentioned this before we came on the show about the confessions in there. It talks about how God does this in such a way that secondary causes are not destroyed, but rather established kind of going back to that idea. Um, and whenever you recognize that that's in a doctrinal statement, it has a profound depth to, to help you to understand that the decree and the execution of the decree are two different things in scripture, right? A lot of times we conflate those two, and that is what brings most of the objections, right? People say, well, it's not fair for God to send people to hell for no reason. Well, hold on. God doesn't send people to hell for no reason, right? He sends people to hell on account of their sin, right? The sin of Adam and their own sin. He sends them to hell. But that's the execution of the decree. So you can't read that back into the decree itself. The decree is merely that God has chosen a people to be in his son, Jesus Christ, and God has chosen a people who will be instruments of justice. Who gets anything in, unjust in that scenario? No one. The reprobate get the standard of justice. That's what they get. And when you get to the execution of the decree, God uses secondary causes, and then he judges them on the basis of their sin, condemnation. So we don't read condemnation back into the decree itself. Um, which is an important distinction to make. But I think that's what people do is they oftentimes think, well, this doesn't seem holy. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Those objections. And it's the exact objections you have brought to Paul in Romans nine. So really not a lot of different objections. Maybe they had the prescient foresight uh, view of predestination from our Arminian upbringing, but for the most part, it's their own individual understanding of what freedom and fairness are. Um, they have to be kind of overturned. So that's very helpful. Um, you in that answer, you used the term decree a lot, which you defined earlier, but uh, you also started talking about equal ultimacy. And so I wanted to uh, bring up a term that I think would be helpful for our audience. I'm curious to ask you, what is preterition and what are the opposing views to preterition and why is this word uh, important for a discussion on the doctrine of reprobation? Yeah, that's, that's really good. So as I was mentioning earlier, you have the decree in, on one hand, and you have the execution of the decree, kind of following, I know this is weird to say the Ramus method of kind of breaking that down into two of not doing that purposely, it just happens to be that way. Historically, there's two aspects to the decree, right? First is what we call preterition. It's God's choice to not choose those individuals. So when he actively chooses one, he's actively rejecting the others or choosing to not choose them, right? Um, and so that is the doctrine of preterition. The other part of reprobation has a kind of scary title to it. I try to redefine it a little bit in my book just to give it a better title than what is historically been given is what is known as pre-damnation. And when you hear that, you're immediately like, whoa, wait a minute, damnation's in there. And that's why I mentioned the execution versus the decree. I retitle that as what we call pre-justice. And essentially, it's the aspect of God's decree where he is choosing that he will hold those people accountable to the standard of justice, not to something they haven't done yet, but that they will be held accountable to justice. And that's important because it, it coincides with our doctrine of election and our doctrine of salvation in that God has the choice to hold Christ accountable to what I did for what I did, right? Um, so since God is choosing Christ to be my head, he's also able to hold me accountable for what Christ accomplished. So that double imputation that we see. And yet we see the, the psalmist, David, continually praise the Lord. Blessed is the man whose sin you do not take into account or whose sin you do not impute. That's recognizing the fact that God can hold men accountable and he can also choose to hold someone else accountable, right? Right which is what we see in election with Christ as our head. And so 
here with reprobation is that God is saying, okay, I am not choosing these ones to be in my son, and I'm going to hold them accountable. And so it's, it's saying both of those things. So that's, that's important. Um, I think the flip side of preterition, or if someone's going to reject it, normally it leads in a, either a hardcore Arminianism, or it's going to lead into a version of, um, of single predestination, um, where guys just say, well, God just elects, and then the rest kind of up to themselves, like you see in some of the later Lutheran traditions. Not Luther. Luther clearly held a double predestination, but much later versions of Lutheran like that exist today that don't follow Luther, um, they believe in single predestination. So they think God just actively chose one group of people, and sometimes it gets ballooned up to, well, it's just like national entities. Um, that's where you get corporate election coming in. Or they'll say, well, God chooses certain people, and there's some that could still be saved, but it's kind of up to them with their own free will. And so you get the idea of Arminianism again. And so uh, I think that those are both important aspects of the doctrine, of what goes wrong when you don't have a robust doctrine of reprobation. Um, I, the other thing, too, I might add is like, like open theism was really kind of originated to combat this idea of doctrine, the doctrine of predestination. Um, another view that's out there that's really stemmed from the Jesuit uh, Luis Molina is middle knowledge. That's another view that exists. And I know Bruce Ware created his own view, compatibilistic middle knowledge. So there's a number of interesting views that are out there. Uh, but I think ultimately what you find whenever you survey those, and, and I talk about each one of them in the book as well, uh, I think you find that they don't handle the biblical text faithfully. Um, so... Well, I think as well as, as um, you just pointed out and, and not handling the biblical text faithfully, I think there's a real temptation from some to appeal to human emotion and to a, a self-perceived understanding of what is just or what is fair from God to do. So they recognize that, um, you know, there, there's a real temptation to, to try to create a theodicy at the expense of the biblical text. And I think that's what we see a lot of times with staunch proponents to double predestination uh, and, and reprobation and divine election and, and some of these more difficult doctrines that we find in the text of scripture. And I wanted to touch on that briefly in our discussion. How does the topic of theodicy come into play in conversations on the doctrine of reprobation? And is there a particular theodicy that you have encountered in your studies on this doctrine that best aligns with the biblical text on the doctrines of predestination, uh, reprobation, and, and all these other categories we've been discussing so far. Yeah, so out there, the doctrine of theodicy is, it's, it's important to be able to understand because we all live in this world and we're all thinking, okay, God's a good God, but yet a lot of bad things happen. And, you know, from our perspective. And again, it's going back to that idea where we judge a lot of things based on our own experiences, based on our own emotions, like you mentioned. And, and that's one of the reasons people don't like the doctrine of reprobation either is because they don't like the, the idea that there are individuals out there who have been foreordained to eternal judgment. But nevertheless, the odyssey comes up when people recognize the fact that, well, if God is all powerful and bad things happen, there has to be a problem. And so that's what we, we think from our perspective. Uh, I think there isn't an actual theodicy. There is, an act, there is no actual problem because God takes responsibility for all things. And at least that's why the, I, the understanding of secondary causality is so helpful because God does so in the ultimate sense. All things will glorify him. All things will lead to the good of his people, right? All things are summed up in those, those truths, right? That he will be glorified. His people will take great joy, in his glory. And the world is a stage to display all of his invisible attributes. And a lot of people don't even like that idea, you know, but we're creatures made in the image of God. What right do we to have to tell the creator, again, kind of going back to the imagery of Romans 9 with the pot talking back to a potter, you know, like, why did you make me like this? It's kind of a silly analogy, but it totally puts us into our place. Uh, now, with the Odyssey doctrines that are out there, there's what's called incompatibilism, which is that the idea of God's sovereign holiness and all of that is incompatible with uh, human agency. And so God has to limit himself or God has to kind of restrain himself, whether it be his sovereignty or his involvement or his decree or whatever, 
And that's a really Arminian approach, right? Is that, well, God limited himself. You know, God chose to, to make it towards up to man's liberty and free will. And so all the bad we see in this world is really just our own fault. That's the problem. You know, it's our own fault. Um, in that, though, one of the things I find lacking is that, in fact, Fred, uh, I think it's, uh, I can't remember the exact author's name, but it's in the God Who Risks uh, open theist book. He says some of the most important things that happened to you in your life were not important to God, you know, and you think about some of the most terrible things that happened to us and the greatest things that happened to us. Um, if they're not important to God, then why did they happen? You know what I mean? Like by cosmic chance, you know, so there's just, they're willing to allow for this idea where men are in such control of things that God is not meticulously over everything. And they're trying to get God off the hook is what they're trying to do. Um, and so that's one version. The other version, interestingly enough, in the Reformed tradition, you actually have two different versions. You have one that's called just concurrence. And that's where theologians will say, you know, there's the issue of evil and there's the issue of God's sovereignty. And there are two concurrent truths kind of running parallel. And we understand they're both true, but we don't understand how. And we'll just, we want to stop there. We don't want to go any further. Um, now, historically, I think that in the Reformed tradition, concurrence is more than just that. Some guys will use it that way, but other guys will use the same term, concurrence, and they will use it to, to really define the doctrine of compatibilism. And that is that God's work is compatible with the natures of the things that he works with, right? Um, each nature does what is appropriate to its nature. So the human nature still wills, still works, still does what it wants according to its nature. And God operates and uses human agency, again, as a secondary cause, but in such a way that the human instrument itself is not destroyed, you know, in the process uh, and rendered null and void. And so um, I think it's best to recognize that compatibilism and concurrence are one and the same thing right? Those two truths, those twin truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, they are explained by compatibilism. I think that's just the best way to define it. Um, and so that's similar going back to like Jonathan Edwards' freedom of the will, where he's saying that a man will choose the strongest inclination of his heart all the time. So if you're, you know, asked to choose between a salad and a steak, you're going to choose the strongest inclination of your heart, whatever is driving you to make the decision at the time. You know, if you need to lose weight, you're probably going to choose the salad because that desire wins out, right? If you're going to choose the steak because you want to get gains in the gym or whatever, then you're going to choose that or it tastes better or whatever. But when he applies that to the spiritual realm, he's defining the fact that there's natural ability. Men have natural abilities. They have a will. They operate. They choose. But they don't have spiritual ability, meaning they can't choose God because they're depraved because of Adam. And so anyway, so I think that those are probably the, the main kind of if I'm doing a big broad brush painting of the, the different views of theodicy. I would say there are some who say that it's a result of just man and, you know, not God's fault. And then there are those who recognize that there's a compatibilism between human responsibility and, and God's sovereignty. Hmm. Thank you for that. Um, I feel a little bad asking you all these detailed questions and then narrowing your scope down to just shut such a brief amount of time. I really do think that uh, as a systematic theology professor, you could spend an, a, a lecture giving us a topic about election, then reprobation, then God's sovereignty, then double predestination, then preterition, then theodicy, and then the historical development of uh, the distinctions between these doctrines. But you have written a book about this. And we want our audience to be aware about this book, um, Reprobation and God's Sovereignty, Recovering a Biblical Doctrine. But if someone is further interested in some of the topics that we've been discussing, uh, especially the doctrine of reprobation, where would you point them to learn more other than your new book? Yeah, if you're looking for good resources, um, it's tough because um, there's so many little aspects to that definition, like you mentioned. If you're looking for a good book on theodicy, uh, the most recent thing that I've I've read is Scott Christensen's What About Evil? That's a very good theodicy treatment. Um, it's not really as concerned with the decree issues uh, or even secondary causality as much, but it's a very helpful, helpful introduction to the theodicy issue. Um, what's funny for me, the reason why I wrote the book was because as I was studying it, I realized there's not, I don't even know if there's another book out there 
um, in any modern print at least, with reprobation even in the title. Um, and it was funny because the first publisher who was going to take the book, I will leave them nameless to cover their guilt, didn't want reprobation in the title. They were like, no, we can't put reprobation in the title of a book. That's going to be, you know, either offensive or no one will know what it is. And I was like, okay, um, I'm thankful that uh, the best part was is then when I took it, when we took it to, to Kriegel, who published it, we gave them the, a new working title that I'd come up with. And they said, you know what, how about we put reprobation in the title? And I was like, oh, this is great. You know, someone who actually will put it in the title. Uh, when you do a survey of like books on reprobation, just the topic, you'll find that really there's only a few that exist as just standalone books. There's actually a book by, it's not, you can't find it as a standalone book. You have to go get it in its complete works. Um, but John Knox wrote a book on reprobation, which, you know, you wouldn't think of John Knox, you know, the fiery Scot who was concerned with, you know, converting all of Scotland and, and England and, uh, you know, one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the world wrote a book on reprobation. Um, and then also the other guy who did as well is John Bunyan. And again, similar thing, you can only get it in his complete works. Um, as far as I know, it's not like they publish these as just small standalone books because people just think there's not a, a really a, a, a digest for it in modern audience. But he did that. And then he, he's, again, one of the greatest evangelists did the Pilgrim's Progress, which everybody you know, loves and cherishes. And, um, and so those are the only two guys historically that I'm aware of have done just a standalone book on the doctrine of reprobation. There's a few other smaller ones that exist out there. Um, you'll see it a lot of times in systematics. So if you don't happen to have, yeah, John Bunyan's works or, or Knox's works, um, then you could go and read it in systematics. I recommend, obviously, Burkhoff. Um, Bob Inc. Uh, both of those are great handlings of it. I know Beaky's handling of it. it's really, really well too. If you're looking for a really modern source, uh, all systematics will talk about it. It's just normally you get like a paragraph or like maybe two pages, and it's not always in the same kind of detail. Uh, I know we talk about it in biblical doctrine, MacArthur's for book as well. So there's a number of like systematics that have a little section on it. Um, other books that are kind of related to it, if you're looking for one on just the sovereignty of God. Um, you'd have to read The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink. I always tell guys to start with that. It's a great book. You have to get the Baker edition, not the Banner of Truth version, because Banner of Truth removed a chapter. I know they've tried to justify why they did it, but I won't let them get away with it. Uh, the Baker edition is unedited. That's the way you want to read it is unedited, because uh, it has a section on reprobation, which is the chapter they took out in the Banner of Truth version. Um, and then, uh, oh, one of the books that was helpful to me early on with that idea of ultimacy, unequal ultimacy, I know I talk about in the book, but a fuller treatment of that uh, was R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God. It was one of the first books I read on predestination, and I think it was chapter six. I can't remember exactly which chapter, but it's called Double, Double, Toil and Trouble is Predestination Double. You know, R.C. was just so great with how he defined things like, you know, just interesting title there. Uh, but that chapter, but that whole book, really. Um, and, you know, you'll find stuff in Bondage of the Will by Luther. talks about the hardening of Pharaoh and everything. So there's a lot of, it's, it's in a lot of works, but it's not always um, in just something very succinct and that's exhausting, you know, kind of covers everything as well. So hopefully this is like a new resource that kind of pulls all those things together for people. So you don't have to read like six books, you can just read one. Um, yeah, those would be the other books I'd recommend on the topic. Um, yeah, there's plenty of others, but, you know, I could do a whole class on what's good reading, you know. <laughs> well, that's certainly a great place to start for us and for our listeners. We've been talking with Dr. Peter Sammons about his wonderful and clarifying book on the subject of divine sovereignty and reprobation. Dr. Sammons, uh, before we bring our conversation today to a conclusion, what final words of instruction or what final words of encouragement do you have for our listeners who may be wrestling with this subject? I know as a pastor, not everybody in my congregation has fully embraced the biblical basis for divine election, divine reprobation, and uh, preterition, and these other subjects that we've been talking about, but they are uh, realities found in the text of Scripture and as Christians, we are called to hold to the full counsel of God's word as the ultimate authority for our life and godliness. So just by way of conclusion, maybe with uh, a, a real pastoral bent, how would you respond uh, just by way of encouragement uh, or by way of instruction to those who are wrestling with these realities from the word of God? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why Calvin called it the dreadful decree, you know, or the horrible decree. I mean, it's tough. It's a daunting thing to think about. But yeah, it's important because, as you said, we teach the whole counsel of God's word. God thought it was important enough to tell us about it. And um, and there's plenty of things that God has not revealed to us. Right. Um, I say this all the time. A lot of times when guys think about something this deep and this kind of profound or impactful on a personal level, it's not because it's hard to understand the, the words of Romans nine are some of the easiest words to translate, even in the Greek. Like they're not hard. It's just they're hard to accept. And so I also I have to remind people that you want to worship God as for who he is, how he has revealed himself to be. And a lot of times people will get to a tough issue like this. They'll just punt Deuteronomy 29, 29, secret things belong to the Lord. And you have to remind them, well, there's a second part to that verse. You know, the things revealed belong to you and to your children. And so the things revealed here, God has spoken about this in a whole chapter, more than a whole chapter, but, you know, plenty of places in the Bible. And so you need to search them out, right? It's wise for a man to search out a matter. And that's what a righteous man does. And so um, God wants to be worshipped. For one, it highlights the grace of God more and more. When you recognize that there is the standard of God's justice and God will hold men accountable to justice, um, it, it, it humbles you to realize that broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many there will be who will go down it. And narrow is the gate that leads to life. And few there will be who find it. And yet you recognize all of that is according to God's sovereign purposes. And so that should humble you because, again, it's nothing that you did. It's not because you were a better entrepreneur or you had better language or you didn't you know, sleep around in high school or whatever, have kids out of wedlock. It's none of those things determine God's determination, you know. Um, and so I think that that's a humbling thing. Uh, but it also helps, too, with personal evangelism, right? I think about it a lot of times when I'm evangelizing people. You get frustrated whenever people you really love, you've been praying for them for years. Why don't they believe, you know, and just knowing that God's in control and he can bring them to faith at any point that he wants. You just keep being faithful to preaching the word, faithful to teaching the truth. And that's the avenue that God uses. He uses his word um, and the preaching of his word to convert sinners. And so you have all these great things that help you persist and, and be patient in your gospel ministry with loved ones, whether it be family members or people you don't know as well, um, that for one, God can save anyone, right? Uh, there's not something that someone has done that makes them unsavable because it's not based on God, on man's work that people are chosen for salvation or not. And then also it rests in God's hands about who he saves. So it's not like I need to be more winsome. I need to be more convincing. I need to be more uh, compassionate. And like my compassion or my winsomeness or my is going to win somebody. If it rested on me, think about how daunting the thought would be that many people go to hell because I'm not winsome enough. I'm not convincing enough. My rhetoric's not strong enough. I don't know if anybody could actually live with themselves, knowing that it depended on them, whether or not someone else received the gospel. And so I think it helps us in that respect. There's so many things we could think about that are helpful. I, I think about the confession, uh, 1689, the 10, I think it's 10.6. You know, a lot of times guys get the doctrine of reprobation confused. And they say, oh, that means that God sends every infant to hell. And it's like, well, that's why we have, I think it's 10.6 in the confession, where it talks about the fact that God you know, can save by a work of his sovereign grace. It's a Trinitarian work in salvation. The father elects, he chose when a person would live or die such as infants. And there's comfort in that knowing that God can, you know, operate in a way to apply the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit on even, on even an infant. And so that's another comfort that comes even from this doctrine um, that is drawn up in the confession that there's the elect infants and things. And so just because you believe in the doctrine of predestination or election doesn't necessarily mean that you believe like all children go to hell or something like that. Sometimes that's a mischaracterature of the position. But um, anyways, yeah, there's a lot of comfort, I think, that comes from just knowing God better. It's going to help your terminology, right? Uh, you're going to speak about God more precisely. Your gospel presentations are going to be more accurate, therefore more God-glorifying. As a pastor, whenever you preach through things, when you're counseling people through really, really difficult things, you're able to see that God's hand is still in it to draw you to himself, 
to give you comfort in him alone. And, um, and it helps you as a counselor, I think, to be more uh, informed about these doctrines because it helps to, again, it, it determines your taxonomy. It determines how you talk about these things, which ultimately gives people that great comfort in Jesus. And so, um, yeah, so there's a lot of, I think, personal reflection that can come from studying a doctrine like this. Um, and it, I think sometimes guys, especially really young guys, when they first come across it, are immediately like, oh, I know something other people don't know. And they kind of boast up in pride a little bit and, uh, and can kind of use it as a club. Well, it's not intended to do that. I mean, the doctrine literally is the most humbling doctrine in the Bible because it puts your election into that perspective that, you know, you didn't earn your salvation, right? You didn't deserve it. Um, it was unconditional. And look at what justice is in light of that, right? Um, you see the, the beauty of God's grace on the backdrop of the darkness of the doctrine of his justice, right? It, it highlights the doctrine of his grace so much more. Uh, if everybody just got grace, then it would no longer be grace, right? Um, so anyways, I think there's a lot of, yeah, encouraging things about the doctrine, but hopefully it just makes much of Christ, much of God, uh, allows God to be the God he says he is that we see in scripture and to worship him accordingly. So. Amen. Well, it's been a delight to have Dr. Sammons on the Covenant podcast to discuss his latest book, Reprobation and God's Sovereignty, Recovering a Biblical Doctrine. We have no doubt that this resource will be extremely useful to the church for years to come. And we pray that today's conversation will lead some of our listeners to study this subject at greater length. So to our listeners, thank you again for your continued support of the Covenant podcast and for joining us uh, for today's conversation with Dr. Peter Sammons. And until next time. We wish you grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.